Heavenly Father, we thank you for the service of this body, the chance to be a part of it and contributing our own gifts, but also, Father, the joy and the blessing that it is to be a recipient of the service that is going on in this place every week, the service that's made possible by your Spirit working in each of us. We thank you, Father, for the ministry of those who take care of our kids and those who care for the facility and those who use their talents in playing music so that we may worship. Thank you, Father, for the service of those who manage many other day-to-day details in this body, things we often forget to even think about, much less be thankful for. But each plays a role, Father, and the most important thing we can do as a body is to study in your word, to give ourselves over to the truth that you provided, to know the mind of Christ, as you say. And so, Father, we give our full attention to that endeavor now. May the word of God rest in our hearts to do the work of God in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Poor Jacob. Poor, poor Jacob. He has met his match in Uncle Laban, as we studied last week. Jacob is this guy who, as we've seen already, loves to rely on schemes and trickery and He manipulates others at times to get what he wants. And he arrived in Haran a little ways back, thinking that he was a man in charge of his own destiny. He had everything under control. Never mind that God appeared to him before he left the land and said, I'll take care of you, Jacob. I'll ensure your success. Yeah, Jacob heard God, but he didn't listen. And so as he arrived in Haran, he had already forgotten all of those things. And poor Jacob finds himself the victim of Laban's tricks. Because though he intended to marry Rachel, as we saw last week, he ended up marrying Leah. And we won't repeat all the teaching we had about the differences between Rachel and Leah, but suffice to say, it was better to marry Rachel, at least from the perspective of the flesh, at least from the perspective of his eyes. Jacob was fooled into thinking that he was in control of his own destiny. And that is Jacob's essential problem. He has a willingness, he's shown a willingness to trust himself more than he trusts God. And in fact, because of that nature, you could say Jacob is the poster child for every man and woman who's lived since Adam. Because all of us, to some degree, share exactly this same weakness. We have a tendency at times, if not all times, to trust in our flesh and ourself rather than to trust in God. Sometimes we excuse it by saying we have a partnership with God. He takes care of the big things, but I'll take care of the day-to-day things. That's not how it works. There's no difference. Jacob, more than anyone else, perhaps, so far in the story of Genesis, is a man who has to be dependent on God and to show that dependence because he is about to become the father of a nation whose very purpose for existence is to show God in the world. So wouldn't you expect that the patriarch of that family should exhibit that in his own life. Now, Laban, we've already studied as well, is an ungodly man. This is a pagan man living entirely in the flesh, ignorant of the word of God. This is, as we would say today, an unbeliever. So who better to discipline Jacob from God's point of view? Because Laban's schemes and his trickery and his sin offers God the perfect antagonist to bring Jacob to the end of himself. To show Jacob the foolishness of depending on yourself. 
of relying on schemes. You see, the irony here is perfectly suited to teach an important lesson. And in the end, the hope God has in this is that Jacob would turn to him in repentance, recognizing God's authority, recognizing God's faithfulness and recognizing his goodness. Last week, we left off as Jacob had entered the tent, the marriage tent. And he came in as a man in love. And he exited as a man in despair. And that isn't a commentary on marriage. That is simply a reflection of the fact that he ended up with the wrong woman, as we saw. And he emerges to find himself now the husband of Leah. Now look where we go next. Chapter 29, verse 25 is where we pick up. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. Laban also gave his maid, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, as her maid. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. Now, remember we mentioned last week about the marriage process in this day and age, how that process in the ancient East involved a week-long affair, a week-long set of activities that marked the, the marriage, the marriage week. That week began with a day of celebration, and then that first night was the actual marriage night in the tent. And that's the night Jacob entered and found himself with Leah at the end of that night. Now, remember, the bride was waiting there for him in the dark, fully veiled. I read a story about one instructor who had a student from India. And as he taught on this same topic, that student came to him later and said, well, in their culture, they follow a similar tradition even to this day. And this student said that his father did not set eyes on his mother, on her face, for three days after they had consummated the marriage. That's how long the veil stayed on in their culture. So Jacob enters this tent having not seen the face of the woman he is to marry, assuming it to be Rachel, of course. And that's what allowed Laban's deception to work. Because after the marriage is consummated, he emerged married, like it or not, to that woman. Now, to add insult to injury, this wedding now, this new relationship that he just formed with Leah, has a week of celebration ahead of it. Because the marriage celebration starts on that first night and goes for the rest of the week. So for the rest of the week, the bride and groom are now expected to celebrate their union with guests. And in fact, this is supposed to be the greatest celebration in their lives. In that culture, this was the pinnacle moment, especially for the woman. I mean, this is a patriarchal society, a patriarchal culture. So women rarely were the center of anything. Rarely was the world revolving around them. And the one time in their life where they got to be the center of attention was their wedding week. That's one of the reasons why I think it took a whole week. It was for the woman, as all weddings are. So here's poor Leah. We began with poor Jacob, but really it's poor Leah. She's unwanted, unloved by the man who was tricked into marrying her. 
And the scripture portrays her, by the way, as someone who was smart enough to understand the situation that she now has with this new husband. She's no dummy. She understands this. She probably understood that the only reason dad did this in the first place was because it was her only chance to get married. This is a woman who had a lot of a lot of things on her mind as she entered into this relationship. She knows she's unwanted and she knows her marriage has started in the worst possible way with a man who now resents her because of the way the marriage took place. And by the way, don't forget about Rachel and all this for just a moment, because remember, Rachel expected to marry Jacob. I have to think that it only came to the very last night before she realized dad's plan. And so as she's getting prepared, as she has high expectations, as she has been waiting seven years, just like Jacob, she comes to find at the last minute that dad is going to throw Leah in the tent instead. Now, she couldn't warn Jacob because doing so would have been shameful and disobedient to her father. She could only stand by feeling jealousy for her sister who was going to take her place, not knowing that she'd ever have a chance to marry Jacob. This is a cruel family. It's a cruel situation. There is no winner in this anywhere. Even Laban himself will suffer as a result of this, as the story plays out. But despite Laban's trickery, what has happened now is self-evidently God's choice. Leah is the woman God chose for Jacob. Now, we could compare this situation to the way Jacob himself obtained his birthright. Think about that for a moment. We know Jacob was the man God said is to receive the birthright. God said that before he was even born, correct? And yet, God allowed Jacob to act in a sinful way to obtain it, did he not? It was Jacob's trickery that led to him receiving the birthright. But we know God had said long before that's how he wanted it to be. So we see perfect evidence there of God's sovereign will working through the sin of men. God did not need Jacob to do that. We all understand that. God did not need Jacob's trickery in order to bring about his choice. But he chose to do it that way. He allowed it to happen that way. And in the course of those events, the consequences of Jacob's sin become opportunity for disciplining and maturing Jacob along the way. So in the course of using Jacob's sin, he got the desired outcome, that is, Jacob receiving the birthright. But in the way it transpired, God also has an opportunity to bring that sin back onto Jacob's head and discipline him through it. So now, similarly, look at what God's doing here. God selected Leah for Jacob, and God took advantage of Laban's sin, his deception, in order to accomplish his plan while at the same time using it as a disciplining measure for Jacob. Now, you're going to see further evidence of this as we go deeper into the story. Evidence that Leah is, in fact, the one God chose, the one and only wife, only wife that God had intended for Jacob. For now, you just need to note that Jacob is not willing to accept God's authority, not willing to accept God's judgment here. Speaking as Jacob, I don't care if it is to be Leah. I want Rachel and I'm not done trying to get Rachel. Now, does this perspective the perspective of God working through sinful men at times, does that perspective challenge your understanding of who God is and of how he works? Well, if so, that's okay, but don't reject it out of hand. Not yet. Let the scriptures talk to you to talk to us about who this God is and how he works. 
Because God can do anything he desires, any way he wants, with or without our help. But the story of Scripture, not just of Genesis, but of the whole Bible, testifies that God chooses to work through sinful men because that's all he has. If he's going to work through men, he's going to work through sinful men. Reflect a little with me for a moment on what you know is in Scripture to see that what I'm saying is true. For example, God saved all humanity through the work of Noah, building a boat, did he not? And yet, immediately after those events, we see Noah naked and drunk, sinfully so. Not a perfect man. God delivers his promises to save a people, and through that people, the whole world, to a man, Abraham. A man who sinfully lies about his wife on two separate occasions while marrying a concubine to create the child God said he would deliver through a promise. Not a perfect man. God chose kings who were sinners. God chose prophets who ran from their assignments and only after being convinced in the belly of a fish did they get up and do the right thing. And even then begrudgingly. He chose apostles who, if you remember, fought over who of them would be the greatest only to have them all later abandon their Lord in his time of need. He chose you and he chose me. Sinful people. And yet, somehow in his wisdom and in his mercy, God is able to make good things come from people like us. That's the testimony of Scripture. It started that way after the fall and it's going to continue that way until we're all in glory in the new heavens and new earth. That's who God is. That's how he's chosen to work. So the Lord here is using Laban's sin to bring Jacob a wife who will both bless Jacob and humble Jacob. If only Jacob would listen. Now, rather than recognizing God's work, what does Jacob do? He's prideful and he remains determined to control his own destiny. So what does he do when he finds out about this trick? He turns to Laban and he says, I want an explanation for how you came to do this. What was going on? Well, what was in your mind? And Laban's answer is, well, it's not our custom to marry off the younger before we marry off the older. Now, we can't be sure that Laban is lying, but he's lying. It's not the truth. There's no such custom. And even if it was the custom in the land, why didn't Laban tell Jacob about this custom when they entered into the deal? Jacob clearly would have said, had he known, well, I'm not interested in Leah, custom or not. And he would have at least tried to negotiate something else. He wouldn't have done what he did. So obviously, Laban told Jacob only what he knew he needed to, to keep this deal going. And had he told him anything else, the deal wouldn't have happened. So Laban's answer is not the truth. Here's what Laban's doing. Laban is simply trying to find a way to save face now that his deception has been revealed. Because in Eastern culture, saving face was all important. Maintaining your honor, even when it's obvious you don't have any, is all important. The culture worked very hard. It worked overtime to present itself as righteous, even when everyone could see for themselves that you were not so. So it was a game of sorts. And here's the key, and this is why you see Laban giving this answer. As long as the offender could offer a plausible explanation for their behavior, everyone else would automatically play along with that 
Because if they were to object, they would be taking face away. They would be robbing him of honor. And that in itself was a dangerous thing to do. You were not going to become the cause of someone else's shame if you could possibly avoid it. Because the consequences for this stuff was literally life and death. I think that's one of the reasons why you see in the Bible, in this culture, so much willingness to look past the obvious lie. Because if you challenge someone in the moment, there really was no option except death for that person. And you were basically pushing for the death penalty if you were to go into an argument with someone over this kind of stuff. So what does Jacob do? Jacob plays along. Oh, that's the rule. Okay. But he's not going to challenge. So now Laban knows something here that's very important. We have to look between the lines for a moment. Laban understands that Jacob wants Rachel and still wants Rachel. But Laban wants something himself. And the whole reason this deception was set up in the first place is because Laban's plan from the beginning has been to keep Jacob in his household for as long as he possibly can. That's the whole point for Laban. Laban has a sheep herding operation that really needs Jacob's expertise. And now that he's had him for seven years, there's no way he wants to lose him. In fact, his whole plan from the beginning was to find reason after reason after reason to never let Jacob go. And now that Jacob has been tricked by this substitution, Laban plays another card in the scheme. And his next card is, well, you can still have Rachel if you like. It'll just be another seven years. In reality, when this is all said and done, Jacob will have worked for 14 years to get the woman he wanted. And along the way, picking up a little baggage that he never expected. Here's the genius of what Laban's done. Laban knows that Jacob would never trust him. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. There's no chance that Jacob is going to say yes to the deal for Rachel's hand at this point. Having just been tricked the last time he tried to make this deal. So Laban's genius here is to not make him wait for this woman. He says, I'll give her to you now, but you agree to work the seven years after you have her. That's the beauty here. If he had told him, no, you've got to wait another seven years, there's a very good chance that Jacob would have simply taken Leah and left. No, but Laban wants Jacob to stick around. So he makes this deal attractive. And of course, Jacob agrees. What else is he going to do? 24 hours earlier, he thought he was marrying Rachel. Now he finds out he didn't. And now his chance is still there. Of course, he's going to take it. Laban adds one other condition, though, and I think he does it out of pity for his oldest daughter, Leah. Laban asks Jacob, at least wait the week of this marriage celebration before you run off and marry Rachel. At least give Leah her one week in the spotlight before you turn your back on her and marry the woman you really love. Because everyone knew what was happening. Everyone knew what was going to transpire. Everyone knows that Rachel will be the one he loves and Leah will be forgotten the day after the marriage. And so give my daughter her one week. This had to have been tremendously humiliating for Leah. A mockery is taking place in her week of wedding. She knows that no matter what Jacob does to honor the tradition, his heart is not in it. And she also knows that she's a few days away from losing her husband to another woman. In verse 28, we're told Jacob does what he's asked. He completes the week of celebration and then immediately marries Rachel, which, by the way, would have ensued another week of celebration if they held to the tradition. And like Leah, Rachel gets a dowry, too. Her dowry is the same thing, a maid. So now each of them has their respective servant girl. And in 30, verse 30, our suspicions are confirmed. We're told 
Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. This is a terrible family situation. There's no winner here, as I said. You got Jacob, who's bitter and indentured now for another seven years. You got Leah, who's unloved and in a marriage where she'll never be the favored wife. And then you have Rachel, who, though you might think she's in the best of situations, at least her husband loves her. Well, while he does love her, there will be consequences for her as well. If there were ever any question about whether God has approved multiple marriages or not, you only have to go to moments like this, wherever they occur, whether it's in Abraham's life or now here in Jacob's life, and see the consequences of multiple marriage to see all that God needs us to see to understand his heart. God in Scripture never endorses multiple marriages. The result of them, wherever they appear in Scripture, is always displayed as a negative influence in the family as something God does not desire and as something that weakens relationships, not strengthens them. In fact, later in the law in Leviticus, God specifically outlaws multiple marriages between sisters. This very thing, in other words. And yet, whenever a multiple marriage happens, it is legitimate. In other words, the fact that a man would engage in a second or a third marriage does not invalidate the marriage. It creates problems. It's not according to God's will. It's illegal in our culture today, and we should not pursue them in any case. But when someone has chosen to do that, they are legitimate and they are binding. Ending the earlier marriage to preserve the later marriage is not better than holding on to both of them. Divorce is divorce, and it's always wrong. And multiple marriages is not a good thing, but they're marriages nonetheless. And you hold on to them. Every time a man makes a marriage commitment, he is bound by that commitment. I've uh, stories about the nature of ministry in Africa, where in some tribal communities, multiple marriages are still commonplace. And a man will be brought to faith in Christ and usually with him, members of his family. And he may have entered into that moment with multiple marriages because of the culture that he lived in. Now, as a man of God in Christ, he comes to know from the scripture what God's expectations are. But he remembers what Paul teaches in First Corinthians, which is remain as you are. So as a man married, he has two marriages. Honor those marriages. Be a man who is committed to each of those marriages because to end them is not a better thing than to be honoring to them. Remain as you are. Let's turn to Jacob. I want you to consider the situation he finds himself in now. His first wife, the one God provided, has been cast aside to live out her life as a second-class citizen in this family. Meanwhile, he's moved on now to a new wife, to Rachel, the one he wanted. How do you think these two women are going to get along in this family? How do you think they're going to respond to one another as sisters? Well, Jacob's stubborn decision to seek Rachel is going to bring lifelong struggle to this family. And it won't end with these two women. As we're going to see as we follow the story of Jacob, he has now sown the seeds for intense jealousy, not just between his wives, but between their respective children. And it will result in the most horrifying experience in Jacob's life. We will be able to trace an experience we'll study later in his life directly back to this moment. The dynamic of jealousy in his family plays out over the course of two generations. And the trouble starts virtually right away. Look at verse 31. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son 
and said, well, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son. And she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. It's important to notice how Moses starts this concluding passage in the chapter. In verse 31, right away, Moses tells us that the Lord is acting here. These circumstances are brought about by the Lord. The Lord gives Leah the opportunity to have children. And though it's not stated, it's implied that he has withheld children from Rachel. We've seen this already, right? Jacob's father and his grandfather both saw the women in those marriages barren for a time until God chose to open their womb. You have the same thing happening now with Rachel here. But he gives Leah the opportunity to bear children. Do you not see God expressing a preference, at least through this moment? That he would give to the woman who he intended as Jacob's wife the chance to bring forth children first? And yet leaving Rachel unable to have children for the time being. Now, Moses tells us this response on God's part was a result of Jacob's lack of love for Leah. In this day, the culture said that the most important thing a woman could do in life was to bear sons, children in general, but particularly sons for her husband. That was the highest possible blessing for a woman in that day and age. The truth of that, by the way, is reflected in Paul's teaching in the New Testament at a point In 1 Timothy 2, when Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.15, women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now that verse is taken out of a larger context which we don't have time to explore, but I can sum it up for you very simply. The word preserved in that verse is literally the Greek word for saved, as in salvation, saved. So Paul is saying that a woman's most important contribution to God's plan of salvation, the most important thing any woman could ever do in advancing God's plan of salvation on earth is to bear children who might one day become children of God. Think of the magnitude of that for a moment. Think about what Paul is saying. A woman carries in her body this unique and awesome power to bring a soul into existence. And a child, that person that comes from her body, may one day become a citizen of the eternal New Jerusalem. They may become a saved soul, as God permits. One day, then, we can say that the mother may walk down streets of gold side by side with that eternal soul that she had the privilege to birth in an earlier life. Both of those people in that day are equals in God's plan. Both will eternally serve God, and yet one gave physical life to the other. There is no higher calling in God's economy of salvation than that. Men can preach the gospel. Men can exhort men to follow the Lord and so on. But only the woman has the chance to bring a soul into existence who can be saved in that way. And that's what Paul's point is, that for all a woman may want in authority or for all a woman may seek in service to God, don't forget the most important and highest honor God has made available to woman is through the birthing of children who could be souls in eternity with her. So when God gives Leah the privilege here to bring forth the first children in Jacob's family, not just any family, the nation of Israel, the first of the tribes, it's a clear statement from God 
about where his choice lies in this family. Leah was the intended wife, and yet she's the unloved one in this family. I love looking at what God's doing here because it's such a perfect reflection on Jacob himself. Remember Jacob, the unloved son? The one God said is the choice, but the one Isaac said would not be the choice. He had that experience growing up with a parent that overlooked him. And now here he is committing exactly the same prejudice in his own family among his wives. He's rejecting the wife God chose so he can favor a woman of his own choosing. The apple didn't fall far from the tree, did it? Now look at the names and we'll finish on this. The names here are important to understanding God's work in this family. The first child was Reuben. Now the name Reuben in Hebrew literally means see a son. Ben is son and Ru is see. It's literally saying to Jacob, see a son. Look, I gave you a son. That's what his name means. Now there's two things notable about that name. The first is that Leah named the boy, not Jacob. That's notable. In a patriarchal culture, that's very notable. Normally, the patriarch, the father, would have had the privilege to name his own son, his firstborn son. But we're told Leah names the child. That tells us that Jacob has checked out so far from this woman that he doesn't even care about the son that came from her. You name him. I don't care. That's a telling sign. The second thing about this name itself, about Reuben, is how much Leah is hoping and trying to win over this husband. See, I gave you a son. Doesn't that tell you something? Notice in verse 32, Leah says, surely now Jacob will love me. Didn't your heart just go out for this woman? But he's so hard hearted, it has no effect. Now, God is not done here. God is still showing mercy to Leah. So he has her get pregnant a second time and again, a second son. The name here, Simeon, it literally means hearing. And so she's saying, God is hearing my sorrow. God is paying attention to me. This name is also important for two reasons. First, it tells us that Reuben didn't change Jacob's mind. She's still hoping for his attention. And apparently she's still hated. She's still lonely. The second thing it tells us, though, is that Leah is God fearing Remember, she's the daughter of Laban. She grew up in a pagan household. There was no source for God's truth and knowledge in this household prior to Jacob showing up. At least nothing we can see. And yet, here's a woman who's a God-fearer. We would say believer today. She's conscious of God's work in her life. She's crediting God for this blessing that she's received from him. It appears she understands the truth about who God is. She understands the Lord's working here. Isn't this interesting? Leah has not given up hope because she knows the living God. And yet Jacob's turned his back on this woman so far. Well, she has a third son, names him Levi. The name Levi literally means joint, as in two things being brought together. And she says Levi because she's hopeful. Maybe the third time's the charm. This will be the son to join me to my husband. Well, it doesn't work. But it does have a prophetic sense because the tribe of Levi is the tribe from which the nation of Israel produced all of the priests. And the role of a priest is to intercede for men to God, if you will, to join us to him in some respect. And so the name carried that prophetic meaning, even though she intended it in a different way. Finally, God is not done showing grace. He brings a fourth son. Now, I was the first of four in my family. The first three were sons. And you can bet my mom was really hoping against hope that the fourth one wouldn't be a fourth son. And sure enough, she got a daughter on the fourth try. So four sons in a row, that's 
the odds are pretty low, just mathematically. And yet she's brought four sons to Jacob. The name here for the fourth Judah, it literally means praise, as in praise the Lord. Look at the progression of her names. I love the story they tell. First, she assumes a firstborn son. That's enough to win over my husband. I'll name him Reuben. Look, a son. Well, that doesn't work. So when that fails, the next son comes along. She says, oh, look, God is taking note. He's hearing. Look, Simeon. After that fails to win, she goes to the third son. Join. Oh, this one will be the trick. This will finally join us. Well, that didn't work. Now, after three of those, she changes her perspective. She drops her hope of winning over her husband. At least it appears as so. And now she says, all I want to do is praise the Lord. He hears me. He's my husband. He won't forsake me. I go to him with my praise. If you want further proof that the Lord intended Leah for Jacob rather than Rachel, I want you to consider some of these tribes that have come from Leah so far. Levi, the tribe of the priests. Judah, the tribe of the kings. Furthermore, Judah is in the line to the Messiah, which means the seed promise. Remember that? We haven't talked about that now for a little while. The seed promise, this concept that God is going to bless one person in each generation to carry forward the promise to bring the Messiah. That seed promise is his proof of working through the lines of men to bring about what he said he will do. And where in Jacob's family does the seed promise go? Through Leah, not through Rachel. Now, we're not saying Rachel isn't important, that she doesn't play a role. We know that God eventually does use her for bringing forth some of the tribes of Israel. But that isn't the same thing as saying that was God's desired outcome. It just is proof that he can use anything to glory, even our sin. But Jacob here is a man carrying God's promises, and yet as he lives, he's ignoring God's work in his life. He has, on the one hand, a wife that is coming from a pagan family, a wife who's yet to see or hear from the Lord, responding to the grace of the Lord, and another who we have no signs as yet even knows the Lord. Now, before you shake your head at Jacob, you might stop and ask yourself, do I do this? Because I know that sometimes, as I carry God's promises too, those that have been made sure to me by the blood of Christ in the new covenant, I'm like Jacob in that respect. I carry some promises that have been given to me. I also know that there are days I don't live them out very well. We're all called as Christians to see God at work in our world and to see him at work in our life and to follow him to the exclusion of the things we may want to do instead, to make those choices in his favor rather than in our own. But I'll know there's a lot of days in which I chase the shiny objects of my life, kind of like he chased after Rachel. The thing that catches our attention to the thing that satisfies our flesh, the thing we really love because we just love it. But yet it's the thing that draws us away from what God has put in front of us for the thing he chose. God is always at work. He's always doing what he promised to do. He said he'd give us food. He'd give us clothing. He'd give us a place to live. And he says, while I'm taking care of that stuff, seek the righteousness of God. Seek the kingdom of God. But as we're all prone to do, sometimes what he has given isn't enough. So the house may not be big enough. The neighborhood isn't quite nice enough. The job or the... The wardrobe or the toys don't exactly suit our needs, so we work on those things, which take time and energy. That, in a sense, you could say, is like what Jacob's doing here when he chased after Rachel after already receiving Leah. Already having what God provided, he sought for something better. 
I think of Aesop's fable of the, the dog that had the bone in his mouth and he looks at his own reflection in the river and he wants the bone in that dog's mouth more than the one he has in his mouth. So he opens his mouth to get the other bone and loses what he had, right? There's a real spiritual story in that fable of what we could lose in eternity because of what we try to gain in the here and now. Think about that. How much work and effort in your life can be traced to trying to obtain something better than what God has already provided for you in the by and by? Now, Scripture isn't saying it's wrong to have hopes or have dreams or have desires or improve your life. I don't think that's what we're saying. But if those desires distract us from following God and serving him, well, then, yes, they're wrong. By definition, Jacob is clearly distracted And his distraction is sowing seeds of discontent that won't bear fruit for many years. But when they do, oh boy. That's the story of Jacob. His sin is only beginning. But let's keep that in mind as we come back in the weeks to come and watch this continue to play out. He has eight more children from three more women. And all of that is going to create tremendous discontent. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us, Father, to keep our eye on the things you would have us do in the ways we should spend our lives. We know, Father, that you give good gifts and our lives are already filled with many wonderful things. But don't let our desire for those things, Father, cloud our judgment, distract us from the service you call us to. Let us be content, Father. Let us seek contentment in all things. I know, Father, from your word that when we are content and resting in you and seeking after things that are eternal, you can do great things through us. Things that have lasting eternal value. Don't give up on us just as you were faithful to Jacob. Stay with us, Father, and guide our decisions. Hold us to you. Encourage us. Discipline us. We're too weak to do the things we need to do on our own. But you are so far stronger, Father. We can rest in that. And, Father, in the weeks to come, as many travel and as others are coming and going in the busyness of life, I pray, Father, you would continue to bring all of us back here as often as possible for the encouragement, for the teaching, for the chance to pray and encourage one another and fellowship. I pray, Father, for the continued health and growth of this fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing that it is to be a part of Oak Hill Bible Church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.